Just in front of Jay Pandolfo. Cosby's back on. Derek England off the defense, moves the puck to center. Here's Cosby with a burst of speed up the middle, gets up and scores! Welcome back, Sid! It doesn't, ha- it doesn't happen very often, but it feels like this week is a really slow sports week. We're trying to get to March Madness. You know, like the smaller conferences are having their tournaments. The Big East started theirs today. In a couple of days, you'll get the ACC and the Big 12, and the rest of the conferences will get theirs together. Sunday is obviously Selection Sunday, and that's going to start a whole new thing. You know, the NCAA tournament, the brackets will be in our hand, and We'll be busy with that for the next couple of weeks. I'm sure we're going to talk to Luke Quinn. I'm sure we're going to talk to Zach from formerly of AccuScore. We're going to start doing college basketball again. And then after that, we'll kind of get right into the NHL and the NBA playoffs. But it feels like this was the week that everything was kind of really quiet. It was hard to find a game of the week. It was hard to make predictions this week. And even despite that, I think we have put together a really great show for today. For the first time, really... In the history of the show, we're going to get down and get dirty, and we're going to talk a little soccer. Uh, this is the Sportscasters. It is March. Tuesday, March uh, 6th, the day before the potential iPad 3 announcement. <laughs> uh, this is Season 2, Episode 9. My name is Steve Bennett, and my co-host is Don Russ. How are you doing today, Don? Not bad. I see it a little bit, catching up with you. <laughs> yeah, maybe a little bit. Maybe a little. Okay, so today we're going to talk to Grant Wall. From SI, SI.com, we're going to talk to him about soccer. I uh, spent the day kind of reading and checking things and trying to educate myself as best as possible for when we talk to Grant. I don't want to sound like an idiot. Obviously, the, the reason for to have Grant on now, um, as opposed to at any other point, is because USA Soccer got maybe one of their biggest wins ever. Maybe. Ever. I mean, yeah. it's certainly probably their biggest win in a friendly. Right, right. They defeated Italy for the first time ever. And they've been playing Italy in soccer since the 1930s. Uh, I think 11 matches total. It's their first victory. So we decided to get Grant on, and we'll talk some soccer today. Also, on the show, we'll talk with Jeff Merrick from Rogers Sportsnet. Do a little puck with him. You heard the uh, highlight on the top. Sidney Crosby should be back by the time we do a show again next. And we'll get into the draft and the combine stuff. We're going to talk with a new voice about the draft and the combine and those kinds of things. Talk with Tony Pauline, who has his own website, dftinsider.com, and he writes for sportsillustrated.com about the draft. Before we can get to any of that, though, we have some things to discuss. Don't forget our podcast last week, Season 2, Episode 8. Dave Damashek, Dan Levy, and Andy Strickland were on the show. Three very uniquely different guests, too. Uh, don't forget to check out the three websites we're close, most closely affiliated with at this point. ProPlayerInsiders.com, ColdHardFootballFacts.com, and FootballNation.com. Don't forget to find us on Facebook, the Sportscaster, Facebook.com slash Sportscasters. We're at Sports underscore Casters on Twitter. You can find all that on our website, Sports-Casters.com. Grant Wall, Tony Pauline, Jeff Merrick, let's get it started with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. 
I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, the first thing this week we're going to handle a little bit differently because we both came uh, with our show prep and had a lot on the same subject, and that is your Saints. Yeah, it's a no-brainer that we have to go here. Uh, multiple things to talk about. Bounties is maybe the, Let's start the buzzword. Go ahead. Uh, Greg Williams, someone kind of outed him, and uh, he's kind of admitted to paying players, or putting bounties on opposing teams' players and having a system. I'm sure you've heard it all. It's been all the talk this weekend. So what do you think? I mean, it's frustrating. It's it's never something you want your team to be associated with. You know, you don't want your team to be the team that is breaking the rules. You don't want the team, you don't want to be, you don't want your players and you don't want your team to be the ones that are on sports center for the wrong reasons. Right. You know, you you don't want to be that team. It's it's uncomfortable. It's not fun. You know, I have a lot of pride in being a Saints fan. We're in the studio right now, and, I mean, if you just look around, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious, you know, what kind of sports fan I am, and I guess I'll probably have to tweet a picture or something. That said, and I'm not, I mean, I'm kind of a Saints fan because you are. I follow them more because you are. I have no connection to them, but this is one of them things where it's like a recruiting violation in the NCAA. Everybody's doing it. Not everybody gets caught. Right. So... That has to be aggravating. Yeah, well, you know, Greg Williams, it seems like, is the, the real bad guy here. And sure, Coach Payton and Mickey Loomis have to take some blame because it's, you know, like you mentioned college, it's it's con- program control. You know, you have to have control of the, of the team. And the GM and the coach should be able to overrule some, the defensive coordinator. Right, and the owner supposedly spoke out against it to them and it still continue to go on right so you know sean payton i i don't think he should be fired by any means nor do i think mickey loomis should be fired but they're gonna have to accept the punishment the the team is gonna lose out on something it's gonna be money it's gonna be draft picks i think if the nfl really wanted to punish the saints this year they should have taken away the franchise tag yeah because that would have really caused the saints some trouble but yeah it, this sucks i hate it i there's no defending it Right. Uh, it's it's not anything that I would want the team to be a part of. One thing I think is ironic about it, I don't know that we've exactly been the purple people eaters the last few years. I mean, it's... No, and I heard... If uh, we had a bounty on Marshawn Lynch, I don't think we cashed <laughs> that one a couple yeah. of years ago in the playoffs. And I heard uh, on local radio here, because Greg Williams is a coach here too, and people have said the same things. The Bills... We're never exactly a scary team. In fact, I don't remember the Redskins being scary no. when he was there. I mean, the Bills, if anything, I think they were the first or second rated defense in the league when he came here, and they got worse, and they weren't exactly intimidating. You know, it's or... funny that the last coach of the Saints, Jim Haslett, had a reputation for being a really nasty guy. You know, and it's ironic that the next regime would be the, the one, one that, got in trouble. that would get in trouble for this. But it's frustrating, and it's disappointing. And I wish they weren't the team. I wish it was someone else. Right. Believe me. But, but like, it's out of my control. I mean, it's, you know. Do you think they something get... Something as a fan, you got to just... Yeah. I've heard the punishment might be harsher, harsh, more harsh than Spygate. No, I think it should be about the same. The one thing I'm glad about is this isn't really a competitive thing in terms of... Right, it's not cheating. It's not like the Patriots gained an advantage by having those videos. And have only one... 
what, two playoff games since or something right. like that. No Super Bowls. I don't think you can take 09 away. I don't think this taints 09. You know, I don't. I mean, the NFC Championship game is coming to question, but, you know, I think that it would have been a no-brainer, bounty or no bounty, to really go after Brett Favre that day. <laughs> right. You know, he was old. He's, he can't move. You know, that would be the game plan regardless. And, you know, the week before with Kurt Warner, same thing. You know, and uh, I don't know if it carried into the Super Bowl. I don't remember anything dirty there. Yeah, it's an it's an odd thing, and we're finding out more and more that it's not unique to football. Uh, Charles Barkley said he had a bounty out on somebody back when he played in the eighties. Yep. Uh, I heard a story about Rob Ray, Sabers enforcer, uh, had an AHL coach had a bounty out on him that never ended up coming out because Ray got called up to the NHL before the next time he played that coach. But he said it was like a two hundred dollar bounty on his head, something real small. But I think the scary thing is if even if this is happening, it's the type of thing like. Some people want to go to McDonald's and just eat a burger sometimes. They don't want to know what goes into making that burger right. necessarily. People want to watch football and their sports, and they, they like some of the brutality of it, but they don't want to actually know that people are out there trying to basically end people's careers for what amounts to barely any money for these guys. Like $1,000 to these guys is nothing to end somebody's career by taking out a leg. Or I mean, they talk. I mean, It's if, the wrong time to be on the opposite side of player safety. Right. That's not where you want to no. be in this day and age with concussions being such a hot button issue and you know all the suspensions and all the changes the league has made to try to protect protect players. Right now is the wrong time to be on the other side of that and I think that's why people have said that the punishment could be harsher than Spygate because right now player safety is such a big issue and you don't want to be the team violating that. Yeah, that's it. I think that's going back to what you said about Spygate. Spygate was a competitive thing. This isn't I th- if the that, punishment came down as a first round pick next year, they don't have one to take away this year. Okay, if because they already traded it to the Patriots, right? Basically, their first round pick this year is Mark Ingram. Okay, right. So if you want to take a first round pick away next year and charge the organization five hundred thousand dollars, and then maybe suspend Coach Payton for a game, maybe you punish Greg Williams. I'm I'm okay. What are you gonna do? Right. You have to. This is kind of one of those things. It's out there now. I think the Saints need to cooperate in any way they can. I think they need to be honest, and then they just need to accept the punishment and move on. Yeah, you mentioned that the the worst punishment might have been taking the franchise tag. That brings us to our second thing. Uh, that's how they're handling the Drew Brees free agency situation. And from an outsider's point of view, I've heard things tossed around in the in uh like rumor mills that they're they were banking on him kind of being a nice guy because he is a nice guy and now he has ties there and he's this and that but i mean he's arguably the best player in the league you gotta you gotta pay him i don't know how far apart they are i haven't heard the actual dollars but i think they need to find a i'm gonna say this this is the most important 100 days in the history of the saints franchise the way they handle between now and July when teams start to do mini camps and get ready for training camp is going to really determine the path of the franchise for the next five to ten years. Drew Brees, Marcus Colston, Carl Nix, Tracy Porter, all those guys are free agents. The team needs to be creative. They need to find a way to bring as many of their own players back as possible and try to get better. They didn't win the Super Bowl last year. There was some deficiencies in the team. 
They need to try to find a way to get better without a first-round pick. You know, not having a pick in the draft until well into the 50s. Right. Potentially losing that pick. Maybe losing other picks because of whatever punishment they're going to get. So, Mickey Loomis needs to get to work. And but this can't turn ugly. They don't need but this. They, can't, they right. do not need this right now. They, this is a no-brainer. It's the best guy you've ever had since 1967. He means too much to the community, too much to the team. He's arguably the best player in the league. Yeah. Do what you have to do. And Breeze has to be willing to do what's best for the team as well. Right. Because, sure, Drew Breeze could get $28 million, but is Drew Breeze the kind of guy that wants to take $20 million and watch Marcus Colson and Kyle Nix walk out the door right. behind him? Who, I don't think who's so. the highest paid quarterback? Is it Peyton right now? I think it might be Brady. Might be Brady. But, I mean, you got to just make him the highest paid quarterback and call it a day. Yeah. You have to. Yeah, you're right. Uh, the last one thing you, which you have to do, is you have to make him happy. Yeah, you can't. You have let to this make turn him, ugly. He has to be happy, and you're right. It can't be. It's just, we're not dealing with Reggie Bush here. No, you know, like the last big contract that was going to be, you know, was Reggie Bush and would he hold out and could they sign him? This is di- this is different. This is beyond that. This is a guy who has brought the community a Super Bowl that has created that is in the communities. Done the fun and Breeze did a lot, or Bush did a lot of great things for the community too. I have to admit that he did a lot of great things for the community, and you know to be drafted when Bush was, I shouldn't discount that. But this is this is the most important net three months in the history of the franchise right now, and I'm nervous. Right, I'm I mean, really nervous. At the same time, Drew Brees isn't exactly Joe Montana the year he went to Kansas City. Right, he's, he's in, still his, in prime his prime still, so that, he yeah. might be at the. I mean, it's, he might be. He just set the. He just had the best statistical year in the history of quarterbacks last year. Yeah, so I'm. I'm sure they'll make it work because they just can't no not choice. make it work. Right. Uh, the last small thing on the Saints is Randy Moss. This is almost more a Randy Moss story than it is a Saints story, but he did try out uh, with ex Buffalo Bill Brian Brom. I didn't know he was a Saint now, but I. Uh, uh, I don't know if there's a story. Supposedly, there. he's out of retirement now. Uh, Jeff Duncan, who's been on the show before, works for the New Orleans Times Picayune covers the team, said, you know, it's just due diligence by the scouting department to update what's out there. I don't think that they're going to sign Randy Moss, but they might be more interested if Colson, Colson leaves, leaves yeah. or if Meacham leaves. You know, so I think right now they're just doing their due diligence, seeing what's out there, you know, seeing if there's anything left in those legs. You know, maybe he's a guy that would be a good candidate to be a one-year player if Colston leaves and give the, t- the team some time to regroup. Yeah, all right, so that was kind of our combined first thing. We don't typically do that, but we had a lot on that one. Uh, my second thing this week, you heard in the open, Sidney Crosby again is cleared for contact. The clip we played was the first goal back after he was cleared for contact and played last time. He, uh, I don't think he said there's an exact timetable yet. They don't. He but, said no quicker than Sunday. But yeah, but it's yeah, it's, a, it's great news for uh, Pittsburgh. And if he can stay on the ice, I think they're immediately the favorite to win the cup. Uh, yeah, we're gonna update our top ten lists later. Yeah, and I think we're this. I think I prepared my list last night. I think I need to adjust it a bit because I think the Penguins move up. Right. I mean, the NHL maybe back when Dominic Hasek and Patrick Wall around, it might have been more of a goaltending league. It's a center league now, and that team has two of what the top two, maybe three. Right. I mean, they might. Yeah. That's that's a ridiculous team. Uh, they've managed to hang on with Malcolm playing awesome this long if they get the best player in the world back 
then look out. You know, Michael Farber had a really interesting profile about Evgeny Malkin in Sports Illustrated this week. And he pointed out that Malkin's stats are significantly greater without Crosby than with him. And that, you know, surprisingly, they've kind of struggled together. Their power play when they've played together hasn't been that great. So it'd be interesting to see Malkin, who's had really an MVP season, be interesting to see how he reacts to Crosby being back in the lineup. You know, because as great as it's going to be to have Sid back, it'll be interesting to see how, how Malkin handles that. And hopefully yeah. hopefully he keeps going, if you're a Penguins fan, that things just keep going as they've been and, and Crosby coming back as a bonus. We're going to talk more about Crosby with Jeff Merrick later in the show. And I should point out that, if nothing else, I'm really happy that Scott Stevens isn't in the league anymore. <laughs> That's true. All right. Uh, my number two thing is Syracuse basketball. What a strange season they're having, huh? They're having one of their best ever on the court and probably their worst ever off the court. Yeah. It all got started before the season with the Bernie Fine child abuse Right, kind Scandal. of the, uh, like a yeah. light version of the Penn State. Right, it was almost a spinoff of that. Right. It was like the thing that we found out after. And he was fired in November. Syracuse is number two in the country right now. They're the number one seed in the Big East tournament. They could probably lose in the first round of the Big East tournament, still be a number one seed in the NCAA basketball tournament. And word came out yesterday or today that there was a Yahoo Sports report the Yahoo Sports report that said that Syracuse has had a bunch of players fail their self-imposed drug testing, <laughs> and then they didn't punish them. Oops. So Syracuse has basically been knowingly violating its own drug its own policy, rules. and that could trigger the NCAA's so-called willful violators clause used when there's a pattern of violations. So that would allow the statute of limitations on this thing to be expanded. Um, some of the players' names since 2001 include Niagara Falls' Johnny Flynn, uh, Josh Wright, Deshaun Williams, Eric Devendorf, who played on the national championship team. You know, when I was in high school, my high school basketball coach knew Jim Beheim and hated him. Oh, really? You know, hated him. Hmm. And... Uh, you know, maybe we're getting a look into this guy's maybe not that great of a guy. No, that definitely doesn't seem like it. And how silly to have your own policy. Right, why? Why do it? Yeah, because they didn't have to have the policy. No, right. It's almost like WWE drug testing. Yeah. <laughs> so, strange year for Syracuse basketball. Uh, a quick shout-out for my sister's sake, uh, UB's having a nice year and is yeah, they're in threat- Cleveland, threatening a uh, potential NCAA tournament bid. Tournament bid, so uh, go UB, I guess. Yeah, for sure. My last thing this week, Peyton Manning. This is uh, hot off the presses, as you can for a podcast. Uh, Peyton Manning was been released by the Colts in maybe a move that's not surprising, but it's still a little bit jarring to think of Peyton Manning as anything but a Colt. But it, it, it's going to come now. We ex- maybe thought and expected it, but now we know for sure. Uh, and recently there's been cell phone video. I don't know who it is, but if you've seen the video, it looks like the guy's kind of hiding behind the door with his cell phone and taking... <laughs> what a creep. Yeah, and he's taking video of uh, Manning throwing, and he looks good. It looks like he's got plans on playing. He's trying his best to play this year, it looks like. So he's going to end up somewhere, and that team's going to get a lot better. So 
it's definitely it's interesting from fantasy football reasons. I mean, is it Washington? Is it Miami? Is it Cleveland? Yeah, uh, it's not Buffalo, right? No, I wouldn't think so. Uh, it'd be interesting if be it was cool. someone like San Francisco, but they Alex, almost Alex they almost Smith have to stick. Finally, with them. has a nice yeah. year, and then you're gonna. I mean, that's probably his best chance to win is somewhere like that. But yeah, he can really land anywhere, and anywhere he lands, I guess, would be a potential. And I think we've team. seen with the Colts disaster last season that how good he is how much he makes the players around him better yeah. so it'll be interesting i think washington will be a team that will really come hard at him why not they, they all the money, the money they've spent yep. over the years why not this guy you know so i think with the colts i think it was just they really like andrew luck and why would you pay peyton manning 28 million dollars and you can bring andrew luck in i think we're past the point of having players drafted first overall sitting out seasons yeah, you, you talked about uh, how this is going to be the most important 100 days for the Saints. This is going to be one of the most interesting 100 days for the NFL in general. Free agency opens, I just looked it up, it looks like March 13th. So we are one, one week. week away, exactly. And Peyton Manning is going to end up somewhere. Drew, Drew, they're going to have to do something with Drew Brees. Now they have a long time to yeah, sign Yeah, they have till July. But, I mean, he's going to get signed, but still, it's a story. Uh, lots of good free agents out there, especially from the receiver position, guys like Vincent Jackson. And in the Sportscasters 10 later, we're going to go over a list that we made together of the top 10 players in the league that received the franchise tag. Yeah. And there's quite a, there's a lot of big names. And then there's a lot of kickers, too. So <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of an interesting mix. All right, my number three thing for today is just that since we were last on, Major League Baseball has officially agreed to expand the playoffs starting this season. So 19 years ago, there was only four teams in the Major League Baseball playoffs. And next year, or this next playoffs, there will be 10. It's about time. I mean, baseball maybe is, uh, more than any other sport, a sport of tradition and stats. And people love all this type of thing that are diehard baseball fans. But there just aren't that many diehard baseball fans anymore. That fan base is going away, so why not... I think what we're seeing is the start of a Major League Baseball's maybe progressive era. Right. You know, Houston is going to move leagues. They're going to be in the American League. Right. You know, there's going to be balance. There's going to be two leagues with three divisions, five teams in each division, and seven having one with four and one with six. They're going to have an extra round of playoffs, which is going to be the two teams that finish in the wild card are going to play a one-game playoff to basically be the wild card team as we've come to know it the last bunch of years. So whoever finishes third in the league, whoever finishes fourth in the league, are going to play each other in a one-game playoff. And we always hope for one-game playoffs. Right. We always root for them. Now we're going to get two of them every year. Yep. And, um, you know, sure, probably we're not going to have a day like we had day 162, which Lee Jenkins wrote a great story about in Sports Illustrated, and we talked about him on the show. But it's just going to make for a different great day. You know, it's just going to be different now. And um, maybe... Another thing in the progressive era, there's talk the National League might soon move to the designated hitter. I think that'd be another thing that we'd simply say, it's about time. Yeah, that's about time. I yeah. Mean, no one wants to see these pitchers. Right. It's one thing to can't. think maybe back in the day, guys like Babe Ruth, they were pitching and hitting like, okay, you got a well-rounded guy. But now we got middle relievers that come in to face two or one batter, and they're never going to hit. So why make the starting aces stand in the box and look stupid you know and then you got the poor american league guys who have to hit play the interconference in the games. in the interleague, yeah, and, interleague games. you know yeah so it, it's about time and um 
Yeah, yeah, so, good. Good like for you baseball. Said, the progressive, finally, sports so rooted in tradition, somewhat to its own detriment. And we're almost there. It's almost opening day. I mean, we've got a few more weeks. You know, the NCAA tournament usually plays the national championship game on opening day. You know, Monday. Yeah. So uh, it's only weeks away. All right. That concludes three things for today. Like I said, we have a great show for you. We're going to take a break in a second. We're going to come back with Grant Wall and talk soccer really for the first time on the show. We're also going to have Tony Pauline to talk about the NFL draft. We're going to have Jeff Merrick on to talk some pucks. We're going to do the Sportscasters 10 today. We're going to update our lists of our top 10 Stanley Cup contenders. We're also going to give a co-list that we made of the top 10 uh, designated franchise players in the National Football League. And we're going to do a book club update and pick four, which Don doesn't want to talk about. <laughs> no. All right, let's take a break, and we'll be right back with Grant Wall. Our next guest is from Mission, Kansas, and is a graduate of Princeton University. After college, he began his career in journalism as an intern for the Miami Herald. In November of 1996, he joined Sports Illustrated, where he has covered 12 NCAA basketball tournaments, five World Cups, and three Olympics. In 1998, he and our good buddy John Wertheim authored an SI cover story called Where's Daddy? The story documented the staggering number of out-of-wedlock children born to professional athletes. In October of 2000, he was promoted to senior writer. He has won four magazine Stories of the Year awards given by the U.S. Basketball Writers Association. A warm sportscasters, welcome to the very accomplished and talented Grant Wall. How are you doing today, Grant? I'm good. Thanks for the nice intro. Yeah, no problem. We, uh, you know, we're big Sports Illustrated fans, and our podcast wouldn't be nearly what it is today if not for the strong relationships that we made with guys like John Wertheim and. Lee Jenkins and even Peter King and Don Banks to some extent. And we really appreciate you making time for us today. And we're excited to uh, make the connection, I suppose, you know, the very first time. And it's probably our fault that we haven't talked maybe as much soccer as we should have or should have so far. But I had to have you now because of the big win that the United States had against Italy. And I guess the first thing I want to ask you is just kind of put it in perspective to me. I know it's the first win since 1934, or so competing against them, 0 for 11, maybe before that. But what does the win mean? I know it was just a friendly. Um, put it in perspective for for my listeners and and Don and I. Yeah, I think you're on the right track as far as putting that game into context. The U.S. winning one nothing last week in a friendly on Italian soil in Genoa. Uh, first thing you do have to say it is a friendly and so it's not in a world cup like the u.s played against italy in 2006 um and yet at the same time i, I it's a historic win uh the u.s had never beaten italy before uh in 11 games going all the way back to the first time they played against each other in 1934 italy's a four-time world champion uh, and there were World Cup winners on the field for Italy in this game, including Andrea Pirlo and Gigi Buffon and goal. And while maybe Italy was missing a couple of its top players, uh, this was a good Italy team that's uh, going to be playing in the European Championship this summer and has high aspirations, uh, as Italy always does, for, for winning the European Championship. So uh, this was for the U.S., uh, a really nice win, the biggest one yet under Jurgen Klinsmann, who took over uh, the U.S. last August. 
Um, he's trying to take the U.S. to a new level of, of respect worldwide, and that's a long process. And uh, I don't know if the U.S. necessarily played a different style in this game, but it was still a very good result. Uh, the U.S., I think, deserved to win the game. I was there in the stadium. And this is the kind of thing that uh, you know, ratchets up, I think, excitement around U.S. soccer among not just hardcore soccer fans in the U.S., but mainstream sports fans when they see the U.S. 1, Italy 0. What was the reaction of the Italian press and the Italian players? Were they stunned? Were they, did they feel embarrassed? Um, what, was, what was the reaction in Italy about the game? Well, I, I think based on what I saw in the Italian media, this was um, something that they're concerned about heading into the European Championship, and yet this was not the sky is falling. I think they realized this was a friendly as well. Uh, the big storyline in Italy is that Mario Balotelli was not on this Italy team, and he's kind of the enfant terrible of uh, Italian soccer amazing talent 21 years old has had a very good season for manchester city which is leading the english premier league and he's expected to be part of the italian team at the euro uh but also a very controversial figure he's always getting into trouble um and that was the reason why he was not called in for this friendly the coach for the italian team was trying to send a message so uh that was part of the reaction in the italian media after the game which was mario come home uh behave well and be a part of a good Italy team. Um, you know, the, Italy's lost a couple of friendlies. They lost to Uruguay uh, in their last game in Italy. Uh, so we'll see if they can get things together. But for the U.S., uh, I, don't, I think the U.S. has achieved enough at the World Cup uh, and in the Confederations Cup in 2009 beating Spain that it's no longer tremendously embarrassing for uh, a powerhouse to have a, a tough time or even lose to the U.S., but... Uh, the U.S. hasn't quite reached the level of accomplishment in world soccer that uh, they're expected to win these games. You know, my first memories of being someone who's watched soccer and followed soccer is I remember in the 1990 World Cup, I had a grandmother who was right off the boat from Italy. I also had a great-grandmother who was right off the boat from Ireland, and I, I wasn't sure who I should cheer for, if not both, because I wanted to support the countries that, you know, my nationalities. And the reason I wasn't cheering for the U.S. is they weren't, you know, they, I knew they weren't going to figure in the victory. And then in 1994, I, I watched Roberto Baggio's shot sail above the net against Brazil and, and watched it with my grandmother from Italy. And then, you know, in 2006, I followed the Italian team closely and, and, and the U.S. team as well. Are the U.S., are they any closer to be out, being able to compete? Am I, am I any closer to, as a fan being able to expect them to realistically be a contender in a World Cup in the next four, eight, or 12 years? Well, I guess it depends on how you describe the word contender. I would go back to 2002 when the U.S. got to the quarterfinals and outplayed Germany in that quarterfinal only to lose one nothing. And if the U.S. wins that game, uh, suddenly they're in a semifinal at the World Cup against South Korea with, with the winner going to the World Cup final. And so you're like... Wow, you know the U.S. was actually not that far away. Um, 2010, the U.S. gets to the second round and probably could have played better in the second round game against Ghana, and then suddenly you could be in a quarterfinal against Uruguay. So uh, 
you know, the U.S. is not considered one of the top soccer nations in the world and yet has gotten within striking distance of really making a dent in, in the World Cup and making a deep run on a couple of occasions. So uh, we'll see. You know, it, the World Cup's a crazy event. It's only once every four years. There's teams like the Netherlands that have gotten to World Cup finals but have never won the World Cup, and they're viewed as one of the great soccer countries around. So is Spain, which only recently won its first World Cup. So, um, you know, will the U.S. win a World Cup in our lifetime, I think, is a great question. And uh, I certainly think that's possible. Uh, But it's also not guaranteed. Let's talk a little bit about domestic soccer here. The MLS is... You know, I almost want to say it's been along around now a lot longer than I expected it to be when it started. And I've seen some of the stadiums that have been built specifically for teams. And, you know, some of the excitement around the Galaxy, as you know, in, from the beginning of the contract with, with David Beckham to the end here in their championship last year. But it still feels like the MLS is kind of a minor league feel to it. And I know that we expect our sports to be world-class. You know, the, the NHL, the NFL, the Major League Baseball, those are the best players in the world. And it seems like the only time some of the best players in the world play in the MLS is when they're at the end of their careers, like uh, Henry and, and, and Beckham. What do you think the future of this league is? And am I underrating it right now, overrating it, or is it a fair assessment of what it is now? I think maybe at this point you're underrating it just a hair, not by a lot. Um, You know, MLS starts up this week. It's the 17th year of the league, and unlike 10 years ago, uh, it's very safe to say this league is not going anywhere. It is only going to continue existing. There is no danger of it failing like the NASL did in the early 1980s, and I think that goes down to... Uh, a really smart expansion policy. There's 19 teams now this year in the league with the addition of Montreal. Uh, I'm talking to you from Seattle, where MLS feels major league. Seattle is the most successful MLS market. They averaged 38,000 fans a game last year. Um, You go to a game here, and there's a real excitement. It feels like Europe. Uh, There are other cities in MLS where it does feel minor league, whether that's Columbus or Dallas uh, or New England to an extent. Uh, And yet, as someone who's watched this league over the last 15 years since I got to Sports Illustrated, uh, it's growth. You know, that's that's the best way to describe it. Slow growth, though. And so I, I know that soccer fans in America sometimes get impatient because it's so easy now to see the top soccer in the world because on television there's 50 or 60 games a week coming from Europe and South America and MLS is not at that level yet. Um, and yet I would still say that there's a value in having the game be something you can see in front of you live. Uh, soccer uh, is a lot determined by its atmosphere and MLS has some very good atmospheres whether it's in Portland or Seattle or Toronto or Vancouver or even LA every once in a while they sell most of their seats Uh, and I would say the quality of the league has improved in the last five years uh, to the point where a lot of the games are watchable and there's some real tactical variation you're seeing a lot of teams going to 4-3-3 formations uh, that are fun to watch you know teams like Kansas City and Vancouver and Colorado uh, are playing some uh, very entertaining soccer, I think. So, 
you know, it, it's growing slowly. We'll see where it is in five to ten years. But I, I think there's a real feeling of uh, a positive vibe around MLS, particularly in certain markets. And uh, now the challenge is to get good TV ratings because right now they aren't good. The ratings have been at 0.2, 0.3 now for about ten years. And we'll see now with NBC Sports Network taking over part of the MLS contract this year. Uh, we'll see with ESPN having games again this year if they're able to move up that rating. You know, I always hear about the the big five leagues in Europe, in England, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. Where does the MLS fit in in a worldly sense in terms of, you know, I, I think of the English Premier League maybe as being the best. This Is, is this the worst? I mean, is this in the middle? Is it, where does it? In perspective, where does it stand in the in world soccer? Well, it's truly a global sport, you know, and so it's a very competitive sport. Um, if you look at the top four leagues in Europe, um, being England, Spain, Italy, and Germany, uh, MLS is not at that level. A lot of times, it gets compared to the second division in the second tier in England, which is called the championship and actually has some good soccer in it. Um, and I think that's probably a fairly accurate statement. You know, could the Los Angeles galaxy compete in the premier league? Potentially. I think, you know, that would be a very good question. Could the Los Angeles galaxy avoid being relegated by finishing the bottom three of the premier league? I think they probably could. I look at the wage budget for the galaxy and it's bigger than, Swansea is in the Premier League this year, and Swansea is probably going to avoid relegation. Uh, we've seen players from MLS like Landon Donovan and Thierry Henry and David Beckham go on loan to teams in Europe in recent years and do quite well. Robbie Keane this year as well. And so I think what we take from that is that there is really good talent in MLS. Is it as deep as it is in the top European leagues? No. Uh, and certain teams in MLS certainly uh, would, would not compete in the Premier League. But, uh, you know, I, I've watched a lot of soccer in MLS over the years. I've watched a lot of European soccer. And I, I think the difference in quality between the two is less than most Europeans uh, would imagine. Now, the MLS is starting, as you said, another season in, here in a week or so. The LA Galaxy won last season. What kind of team are they bringing back? Are they the favorites again in the league this year? Or is there another team or two that will really compete with them and, and maybe even be the new champion? Well, the balance of power has really shifted toward the West in MLS. And last year, the top three teams in the league were Los Angeles, Seattle, and Salt Lake. And uh, I think that's very much the same heading into this season. They've done a really good job, those three teams, of uh, building really good cores, um, really being smart in how they deal with the salary cap, which governs everything in MLS and how they go about things. This, in this league, it's designed to have parity so much uh, based on the salary cap. Uh, and yet, Los Angeles will be the favorite again heading into this season. Uh, uh, they were kind of the wire-to-wire -wire winners last year, and they had a, probably the best offseason of any MLS team by keeping David Beckham, which a lot of people thought the Galaxy would not be able to do. Uh, also, his midfield running mate, Juninho, who does all that hard work in the midfield for Beckham, he was able to return uh, when the Galaxy thought they had lost him to Sao Paulo in Brazil. Uh, so Edson Buttle, who was the top scorer for the Galaxy two seasons ago, had gone to Germany. He's back now with the team. So you put those guys up with 
Landon Donovan and Robbie Keane and Todd Donovan at left back, you know, the Galaxy really just is loaded. The one question mark is Omar Gonzalez, the defender of the year last year in MLS, hurt his knee, and he's going to be out for the first half of the season at least. And so the question then is going to become, will the Galaxy be as good defensively? Will they be able to fill those gaps? But Bruce Arena, the coach, has been able to do that over the years. Uh, So the Galaxy is really the team to beat heading into this season again. In terms of United States and their talent, we all know Landon Donovan and what he's meant to U.S. soccer. And uh, Clint Dempsey scored the big goal in Italy last week. Uh, In terms of the best players that are United States born and will be able to help the United States and the world scene and play maybe in the MLS, uh, is is Dempsey Donovan? Are, are those the names? Who are some other guys that are you know? Where, where does Freddie Adu stand? Well, right now Donovan and Dempsey are clearly the best American field players out there. Uh, we've seen that at club level. We've seen that with the national team, and I think there's some questions now about. Who are the next stars for the U.S. to replace Donovan and Dempsey? Donovan just turned 30 this week. Dempsey's about to turn 29. Uh, Who are the next guys? And Freddie Adu is somebody who we've known about since 2003. Uh, He turned pro when he was 13 years old. It's amazing that he's been a pro now for eight years, and yet he's still playing for U.S. youth teams. He's uh, doing quite well lately for the under-23 team that will be the Olympic team if the U.S. can qualify in March. Um, and Freddie Adu is an interesting case because he has shown well on occasion for these U.S. youth national teams and even the senior national team briefly against Mexico last year, but he's never been able to put it together consistently at the club level, and he's with Philadelphia now in MLS, and I talked to his coach just today just about what it's going to take for Freddie to make that huge jump to be a valuable player consistently on the club level, and uh, his coach, Peter Novak, is optimistic but uh doesn't want to talk freddie up too much just because he has yet to become a, a regular starter at the club level ever uh, i think more likely for the u.s you look at guys like michael bradley who is 24 has played in a world cup has done well and is really on a nice run right now in italy for chievo uh logging a lot of minutes um played really well for the u.s against italy uh you look at you know, Tim Howard has been very steady in goal now for a long time for the U.S. and for Everton. Um, and with the young guys, Josie Altador is a guy who seems to be on a pretty good run of form again now for his club in Holland and I thought played well against Italy for the U.S. The Sportscasters are here with Grant Wall from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. You can find him on Twitter at Grant Wall. I want to ask you about this summer, uh, you mentioned it earlier, the European Cup will be played again. I think this is the second time that it's gotten. It will get a lot of lot of coverage, right? It's going to be the big soccer tournament of the summer, and it's been known to have some really great upset stories. Like I think Greece won a, a few tournaments ago, and it was very surprising. Italy, who you mentioned, they haven't won it since like the nineteen sixties, and England's never won it. Uh, what can we expect from this tournament this year? Who are some of the favorites and? You know, what will it take for the tournament to really get the country's interest the way some other soccer tournaments have been able to, you know, without the advantage of having the U.S. team involved? Well, there are a lot of people in world soccer who think the European Championship is the highest quality soccer tournament in the world, that it's even better than the World Cup because it's not watered down with 
teams from, I don't know, you know, like China at one point played in the World Cup or Saudi Arabia or whomever. Like all of the teams that qualify for the European Championship, which is a 16-team tournament, is are, they're really good teams. And so even in the group stage, you've got a lot of very uh, high-quality matchups. Uh, ESPN got the rights starting in 2008, and as they did in 08, they're going to broadcast every Euro game live this summer. And, you know, it got a really good response in 08 uh, as far as uh, ratings on TV were higher than ESPN expected. There was a lot of web traffic. I know at our website, uh, my stories, I did a blog on SI.com on the Euro in 08, got a tremendous amount of traffic. So, um, there's a lot of excitement heading into this, and I think the favorites are going to be some of the usual suspects. Spain is looking to repeat its 08 Euro 2008 championship, and it obviously was the 2010 World Cup winner, um, and they want to do something historic by repeating. Uh, Germany is probably everyone's other favorite in the Euro this summer, uh, a young team that uh, is very dynamic and entertaining. Um, and got to the final in 2008. Uh, and there's going to be other teams that people are looking at. The Netherlands obviously got to the World Cup final in 2010. Uh, Robin Van Persie is probably the hottest striker in the world right now for Arsenal. Uh, will the Dutch be able to put it together in this tournament? So uh, there's a lot of excitement. Uh, England always generates a ton of attention, uh, and they've gone through a, a lot recently with their coach Fabio Capello uh, resigning uh, not long before the tournament. And so there's a lot that's up in the air about the Anglin team. But uh, that's a team that's followed a lot in the United States too, obviously. Yeah, it's it should be a really exciting tournament. I was just looking at some of the groups. And uh, England is with France and Sweden and also the Ukraine, who's one of the hosts. So it'll be interesting to see which two. I assume it's two from each group get out. Yeah, and yeah. it's really hard to predict this tournament just because so many teams do have a chance and the two co-hosts are in there as well. And it's always kind of a wild card with host teams because, you know, will they uh, get a big positive out of playing at home? Uh, and, you know, this is being co-hosted by Ukraine and Poland. Um, and, you know, there's a little bit of a, a question mark, too, about how this tournament's going to go in a place like Ukraine that's never hosted a big tournament like this before. But uh, UEFA, which runs European soccer, wanted to uh, expand this uh, the hosting possibilities. And so Ukraine-Poland actually beat out Italy to host this tournament. And uh, we'll see how the hosts do. And like I said, it's so cool that, you know, Greece has won this tournament in 1992. Denmark won it as like a replacement team, subbing in for Yugoslavia, I, I learned, just kind of researching about the tournament. So like you said, any team could really win it, and it's only 94 days away. So um, it should be, should be an exciting tournament. Uh, again, it's the Sportscaster Show with Grant Wall, who you can find on Twitter at Grant Wall. And I'm going to ask you one more question here before we let you go, because I know you're in Seattle. You probably want to rock a little bit, maybe, you know. <laughs> Check out some Pearl Jam or something like that down in Seattle. We're big Pearl Jam guys here. Um, I always ask John Worth on this when we talk about tennis because I'm not an expert. And I'm certainly not an expert about soccer. I think I asked you some good questions. Maybe yeah. not. But what did I miss? What, you know what I mean? Like what are soccer fans who are listening to this right now saying, come on, Steve, get it together and ask Grant this question. I got to be missing something big. Well, I think you know Barcelona right now is trying to make a case as the greatest club team of all time. 
And, wow. uh, you know, you've got a team that's got Lionel Messi on it, best player in the world. It's got Xavi. It's got Andres Iniesta. Uh, on down the line, so many good players on this team. And uh, will they be able to go and win another Champions League trophy this year? They could certainly make the case that they're if they're possibly the greatest team of all time if they win the Champions League. Now, there's a wrinkle here because... Barcelona is probably not going to win the Spanish title this year. They're 10 points behind Real Madrid as of now, and it's going to be very hard, I think, to make up that ground. And yet Real Madrid has a very hard time, I think, making the case that they're a better team than Barcelona because whenever they play head-to-head, Barcelona is better. Uh, That hasn't changed, even though Barcelona is behind in the standings in Spain. And we could be looking potentially at a Real Madrid-Barcelona Champions League final, which would be just a a huge event in in soccer worldwide if that were to happen. Uh, It it would probably cause the country of Spain to spontaneously combust. But uh, that's the kind of thing I think a lot of people are talking about. How good is Messi compared to the greats? How good is Barcelona compared to the greats? Uh, how long is their window of superiority going to last, and will they be able to win another Champions League this year? You know, Messi is listed at 1.69 meters or five foot six and a half. Is he the best athlete ever that's under five foot seven? I mean, well, he certainly, he I think of like Martin... discussion. Uh, I don't know exactly how tall Pele was or Diego Maradona. Those two are considered the best two soccer players of all time, and Messi is certainly entering that discussion. Unlike those guys, he has not won a World Cup, though. And so until Messi wins a World Cup, there's always going to be debate over whether anyone could consider him the greatest soccer player of all time. Yeah, Pele was 5'8". Okay. So a little bit taller. And the other one you said was Maradona? Yeah, I would guess he's probably shorter than Pele. Let's see. How big was Maradona? Actually, wasn't he just on... um, He was just on The Amazing Race a couple weeks ago. Welcoming. Seriously? Yeah, he was, he was uh, at the finish line welcoming people, and he was five. Holy cow, five foot five. Yeah. Wow. So much shorter than even and Messi too. Then. So There's really. a lot of good short players in the in world soccer right now. David Silva uh, of Spain and Manchester City, Andres Iniesta, Messi. Um, it's kind of cool, I think, that soccer is one of these sports where it's not just about being the the biggest and the fastest. It's about skill. What are you working on? Anything we can expect to be in the magazine or on the website? What's got your interest as a writer right now? Doing a lot of stuff. I've been doing full-time soccer for Sports Illustrated since January of 2010. Uh, before that, I'd done a lot of college basketball. But I, I'd always wanted to do full-time soccer if they had enough demand. And last couple of years, they have. Uh, so uh, I've been really fortunate. Uh, I was in Europe to cover USA Italy. I uh, have a feature in the magazine on Brad Friedel, the American goalkeeper at Tottenham Hotspur, who's almost 41 years old but having a great season. Uh, I'm doing a story uh, previewing the MLS season on uh, the wave of Colombian players uh, who are in MLS and are doing really well these days. Um, And then uh, I'm planning to go to Barcelona, actually, uh, in the next week or two to look at the club and why and what makes it special. Special. Why is this such a an amazing club? And looking forward to speaking with Messi and a couple other players and, and club administrators too. Do you like tra- you do like the aspect of doing soccer full time that you get to really travel the world as opposed to just traveling the country, say covering college basketball, or do you get homesick? Yeah. Or, or I I love the travel aspect. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, 
there's uh, a lot of variety, obviously, in soccer stories just because it's so big around the world, the volume's so high, and soccer's so connected to culture and politics and all these things that I find really interesting. Um, and so, you know, when you get a chance to go to, to Italy to see a USA Italy game or to Barcelona to do a story, um, you know, for me, that's, that's a huge part of why I do this. I just find it fascinating and I've been really lucky to have some nice opportunities. I just got one more, one more question, uh, switching gears a little bit. Uh, what do you think the suspension of the WPS season means for women's U.S. soccer, if, if it means anything? I don't think it will have a huge impact in the short term, but I think uh, in the long term, it's a problem for the U.S. women's national team to continue being good. Um, and I think that's a real concern. And uh, you need to have a league that can help build depth and, and help give experience to, to players. Um, and, I, and it's really hard with women's sports, it's not just soccer, to be a right. financially viable enterprise. And uh, I think that's what organizers are, have been finding out on a couple of occasions with women's soccer. So we'll see what ends up happening. Uh, I don't know if the uh, WPS League will actually get back on track next year. We'll have to wait and see. But you're also starting to see some women's leagues uh, get a little more traction in some European countries, and that may end up being where a lot of the U.S. players go to play. Well, as long as Alex Morgan is on the U.S. team, they're okay in my book. <laughs> <laughs> she is a real talent. Uh, I think yeah, she is. Yeah. Her of, of doing big things. She's only 22, and she scored a goal in a World Cup final and is on a real tear lately for the U.S. women's team. Very, very talented indeed. All right, Grant, thank you very much again. It's Grant at Grant Wall. Oh, and do you want to plug the podcast? There's a SI Sports podcast. You want to tell our listeners how you can get to that? Yeah, it's uh, the SI.com Soccer Roundtable. We're on every week uh, with the podcast talking about the world of soccer. Um, yeah, just check out SI.com slash soccer. we got a lot of good coverage on there. Thanks, Grant. Thanks, guys. Thank you. We have to thank Tony Pauline for making his debut on the show today. Some interesting draft talk there, and I'm sure we'll do more on the draft in the month of March as we get closer and closer in April, of course, as we get closer and closer to the draft. All right, just want to do a real quick book club update for today. Don't forget our book club book of the month is Wayne Gretzky's Ghost and Other Tales from a Lifetime in Hockey by Roy McGregor, the author of The Home Team, which is uh, kind of a fiction hockey story that he's known for um i'm enjoying the book i'm going through it kind of story by story trip to the bathroom by trip to the bathroom (laughs) it plays well like that you know there's some shorter stuff in here some longer stuff in here we talked a little bit about a a column that he wrote about alexander daig that i read last week and i read one this week about mario lemieux um, and some of the stuff that he had went through during his career just to get on the ice. Um, I think we don't even realize uh, how much Mario Lemieux played through uh, during his prime. Yeah. And we'll definitely add that column into our list of things that we'll talk with Roy about when he's on the show. Again, the book is called Wayne Gretzky's Ghost and Other Tales from a Lifetime in Hockey. The author is Roy McGregor, M-A-C-G-R-E-G-O-R. 
Uh, hopefully you're reading along with us. Feel free to email us at sportsguesses at gmail.com if there's something in the book that you have uh, enjoyed or read so far or if you have any questions for Roy when we do have him on the show. All right, let's stick with hockey. Let's take a quick break and come back with Jeff Merrick from Rogers Sportsnet. Our next guest is from New York City, New York, and is a graduate of St. John's University. He spent 10 years training to be an Olympic athlete, competing in the decathlon. Today, he is one of the foremost authorities on the NFL draft. He is a contributor to SI.com, and and with his partner, he provides the content for TFY Draft Insider at DraftInsider.net. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very informative Tony Pauline. How are you doing today, Tony? Well, I'm always doing well when I'm introduced with Led Zeppelin, my favorite band. So uh, I'm doing better now than I was literally 45 seconds ago. (laughs) I love that song so much. I can't believe that it's a B-side. You know, that's when you know there's a great band, when you can find a song that you love as much as I love that one, and it wasn't even on one of their albums. Uh, that's it. That you know, it was a B side, but it wasn't, and it wasn't released till uh, literally, or become uh, famous uh, as far as uh, the radio is concerned, until literally after the band uh, band broke up. So uh, it just tells you about the powers up. The amazing thing about Zeppelin is, is all these other bands, and I know we're we're diverting a bit, <laughs> but all these other bands basically have you know all this material that never made it to the albums that you know Rolling Stones that basically went in the trash. Zeppelin, I mean, literally every song they ever recorded uh, found their way onto either a studio album, a B-side, Coda, which was the uh, the Outtakes album after they broke up. Uh, just shows you what what an immense band they were. Yeah, absolutely, one of the one of the greatest for sure, and they span generations. You know, it's uh, timeless music. Timeless. I mean, you can take the Pearl Jams, you can take. Uh, you know, the U2s, whatever, and you can put a song like Cashmere or Achilles' Last Stand or Trampled Underfoot, and it sounds as good as anything that was produced in the 80s, 90s, you know, the first decade of the 21st century. All right, well, now that I've buttered you up with a little Led Zeppelin talk, um, let's talk a little football. Uh, I'm excited to have you on. It's the first time we've talked to you. Um, draft is coming up. That seems to be your kind of your area of expertise. And the combine was, combine was a couple of weeks ago. And the one thing that interested me the most about the combine was there was this kid from Memphis who was just about the end of the first round or beginning of the second round on everyone's boards. And now after just the workout of workouts, here he is. I've seen him as high as two on some boards. What was your impressions? of him and uh what did you think of the workout and are you as blown away as everyone else seems to be well combine actually ended a week ago today in fact i was still at uh at defensive back workouts uh, as we speak right now that's right uh um as far as don terry poe a couple of things i mean his workout didn't blow me away in the sense that if you watched him on film he looked like a big power forward you know a 340 pound power forward almost the way he moved about the field. I mean, you watch the Memphis film. He was fluid. He was agile. He was able to make plays up and down the line of scrimmage, get outside the box and chase the action, made plays behind the line of scrimmage, 
quick and fluid change of direction for a, you know, a 345-pound defensive lineman. I think what really surprised me, and one of the reasons why he's moved up draft boards, it, it's actually twofold. Number one, 44 reps on the bench right, is the good mark because, number one, when you watch him on film, he's not a real strong player. It's kind of an enigma. He, you know, he moves like a 280-pound defensive lineman, yet at the same time at, at Memphis, he would get locked up in blocks like a 280-pound defensive lineman. Did. So I think that 44 pound, or the 44 repetitions on the bench showed that, you know what, he has the strength. Maybe he just has not been coached properly. Uh, I think the second thing is, is people have to remember there's not a lot of information out there on underclassmen entering the draft. Uh, when you enter the season, the teams get scouting sheets that will show height, weight, speed, character, background information on all the seniors. They don't have that for the juniors. So when a guy like Don Terry Poe comes to the combine, you know, they have his game film, but they don't have a lot of the fundamental background information on him. So I, I think uh, that is another reason why he shut up draft boards. And the fact is, is if, you look at the NFL, if you look at the history of the NFL draft, defensive linemen, especially defensive tackles, uh, go much earlier and, and much sooner than people originally predict. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that 13 of them, I believe, is the number went in, in round one. A couple of years ago, we had 11 of them go around one. So they are a priority position because, again, if you can control the line of scrimmage, especially from the defensive side of the ball, you know, you get a better chance of winning championships. Sometimes these tackles can be tough to project, though. I mean, Jonathan Sullivan comes to mind as someone that the Saints picked pretty high in the first round. Couldn't never keep his weight under control. Uh, it's a scary position sometimes to draft because, like you said, you have to get them the top elite ones. Even Glenn Dorsey seems to maybe not quite have lived up to what people expected and Cedric Ellis and other Saints defensive tackle what is it about the d defensive tackle position that seems to be a little bit hard to project for scouts well it's a variety of things I mean you're talking about defensive tackle we could talk about defensive ends Vernon Goldstons we can talk about uh you know uh quarterbacks going back to people like Ryan Leaf you know receivers or Sean Wood so you could say that about any position but as far as the defensive tackles I think what happens is is you know, on the college level, these guys are so much bigger, so much stronger, so much more athletic uh, than everyone else. They're able to exploit, you know, the opponents uh, on the college level. You get them into the NFL, and now all of a sudden, the player that they're lined up across from is as athletic, is as strong, you know, has all those same physical skills to match up against the guy that his opponent in college didn't. So all of a sudden, now it comes down to doing the little things well, uh, paying attention to details of the position. Uh, that's the first thing. And, and going hand-in-hand hand with that is, you know, is the work ethic. I mean, a lot of these guys are just so naturally gifted. Through high school and, and college, they get by on natural ability. Now, all of a sudden, you've got to turn up the wick a bit and, and, all this, and put, that, <clears throat> put that time in in the weight room. You've got to put the time in in the offseason, you know, really to improve uh, your play. The other thing is, is, you know, the college techniques and college playbooks are significantly different from the NFL. You know, college players are oftentimes allowed to freelance rather than playing with proper fundamentals. They play with fundamentals that makes them comfortable on the field. You get to the NFL, now all of a sudden you got to make sure you bend your knees on every play. You get leverage. You get your hands up. Now all of a sudden you got gap responsibilities. It's just not a matter of, you know, tearing off the, you know, uh, firing off the snap of the ball and then, you know, tear, uh, use a bad word here, tear assing after the ball carrier. You know, all of a sudden you have to make sure that you remain in your gap and occupy blockers so the guy behind you can make the play. So it's a, it's a variety of things. 
You know, we love to talk about quarterbacks, and I think going into the combine, we were all really excited to see Robert Griffin the third run, and he didn't disappoint, ran a really, really fast time. And it seems like the Rams really are going to be the team to benefit. They're looking to maybe move that second pick and, and cash in. Well, tell me about the quarterbacks this year. Obviously, we all know about Andrew Luck and Robert Griffin the third, but is there like a Andy Dalton type of player in this draft, maybe someone that can be picked later in the first round or in the second round that can have a really strong impact for a team that isn't going to be able to pick first or second? Well, the only other quarterback that would go first round is Ryan Tannehill, and I don't see him as an Andy Dalton-type player. I mean, Andy Dalton, you're looking at a guy that was polished, a guy that really made plays with his mental skills as, as well as much as he did making plays with his physical abilities. I mean, if you're looking as far as guys that could potentially make an impact, although, again, I don't think they're going to make impact as rookies, you know, the one name to remember possibly in the late part of round two would be Kirk Cousins of Michigan State who had a solid career at Michigan State, performed well at the Senior Bowl, threw well at the Combine. Uh, but, but when you get to those last two things, the Senior Bowl and the Combine, those were, picture, were made uh, for uh, basically tailor-made for uh, Cousins' skills because he's a guy with a big arm, he's a guy who's accurate. The problem with Cousins is once the game starts and there's 11 guys on the other side of the line of scrimmage you know, trying to tear his head off, things get a little bit fuzzy for him. So it's just a matter of Kirk Cousins, you know, Basically, his mental skills catching up with his physical skills. That's a very difficult thing at the next level. Sometimes it doesn't happen. But if there's a guy who I think could be that sort of player at the next level, it would be Cousins, who I think could sneak into the late part of round two. Is there any players that the book is still out on, meaning that they maybe didn't work out in a certain area at the Combine that we're going to learn more about in their pro day and that they could potentially move up the board or down the board? Well, I think I already mentioned him in Ryan Tannehill. I mean, here's a guy who was a receiver at Texas A&M, started six games as a quarterback as a junior, started uh, as a senior, and really he's, he's a good athlete that's learning to become a quarterback, but he's not a polished prospect at the signal caller position. He's got good size. He's very athletic. He's shown you know a lot of upside as well as a lot of progress. But again, he hasn't been able to make the NFL throws. He was, as I reported, uh, broke the story on uh, Twitter and, and TFYDraft.com, broke his foot the week before the senior ball on a, on a freak accident it, it just in training. He was dropping back, and, and his, uh, I guess it must have been a, a stress fracture that popped. I don't know that for, uh, to be certain, but that's what it sounded like. Knocked him out of the senior ball, knocked him out of the combine. I mean, and here's a guy that many were counting as potentially a top-ten pick on the Miami Dolphins. Now it's kind of up in the air, and basically he has a lot of money or a lot of draft status uh, that, that will be way on his pro day workout because when he goes to the pro day workout, it's probably going to be a scripted workout, but he's going to have to make NFL-type throws many more than he did at Texas A&M. We talked a lot about players who have improved their stock at the Combine, but who hurt themselves? and. I'm going to preface that with, I noticed on your draft board specifically, Riley Reif, the offensive guard from Iowa, seemed to have fallen quite a bit from before the combine to after. Is he a name, and maybe are there a couple others? Well, let's get, well, let's, we've got to get something settled with, the, uh, with that draft board. Okay. But you see, because a lot of people say it's my draft board. It's not my draft board. That came from a team. Oh. That's what a team told me, that how their draft board uh, looks today. So, at my draft board, I don't have Riley Reif. Uh, falling as much, but a lot of teams do, including the one that provided me with that draft board. Why is that? A lot of teams don't think he, he, he has the athleticism. 
uh, to play the left tackle position. He doesn't have the strength to play the right tackle position. He's going to have to be a guard at the next level. He's been moved to the guard position. Those teams that have taken Riley Ruff off the tackle board and moved him to the guard board have, have dropped his draft grade because, you know, he's much more valuable at the left tackle position than he is a guard. And they don't want to fall into that Robert Gallery trap a couple of years ago. Um, so he's someone who, depending on the team, came out of uh, <clears throat> came out of the combine with with lower draft grades. I think he's fallen some. I don't think it's been that dramatic. Uh, I think the guy that that fell more dramatically than anyone else, and the guy that continues to drop down draft boards, is Vontez Burfecht, the linebacker from Arizona State. I mean, you have to look at coming into the season. A lot of people, including myself, thought he was worthy of a top ten, if not top five selection, a forceful defender that could really impact the game at the middle linebacker position. Had a terrible senior season. I'm sorry, terrible junior season. Bad play, bad penalties, off the field incidents. Came up, came to the combine out of shape. Barely broke five seconds in the forty. Uh, stopped, did not do positional drills. And, I mean, you're looking at a guy who a lot of people thought was a top-ten pick before the season. A lot of people thought was maybe a second- or third-round pick after the season. You're looking at a last-day draft pick and a guy who, you know, it's not inconceivable that Vontez Burfecht falls out of all seven rounds when you look at the whole uh, wow. spectrum of his play, his personality, and the issues that surround him. The sportscasters are here with Tony Pauline. Just a couple of minutes left. You can find his work on draftinsider.net, sportsillustrated.com. You can find him on Twitter at Tony Pauline. Let me ask you this. Uh, I can't give credit because I don't remember who said it, but I heard somebody say that Tony Richardson is the best running back prospect in the draft since Adrian Peterson. Do you agree, and do you think he's worth the premium pick that it's going to take to draft a player like Tony Richardson from Alabama? Uh, Trent Richardson, you mean. Oh, uh, Trent, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, the best running back prospect since who? Adrian Peterson. Uh, you know, I, I think that's, Probably a, an accurate statement, although he's nowhere near Adrian Peterson's. He doesn't have Adrian Peterson's uh, speed. He doesn't have Adrian Peterson's game-breaking skill. <clears throat> I do like Trent Richardson a lot. I think he's a complete back. I think he's a guy that has the power to grind it out on the inside, yet he also has the smarts to pick and choose his way and avoid defenders. He can turn it outside of tackle. He's a good pass catcher. I think he's as close to being a feature back as any uh, ball carrier in this draft. In fact, I think he's the only, if you want to quote-unquote sure thing to be a feature back. I like a lot of his skills. Uh, it, would he be as high a pick as Adrian Peterson? I, I think he's going to go a, a little bit lower, but let's not forget you know, the reason why Adrian Peterson won, I believe, was seventh that Seven, year in the draft rather than the first pick of the draft was because of his injury history in college, and that scared a lot of people off. Adrian Peterson was hands down one of the best players in the draft that, uh, you know, he was selected in. I, you're not going to say that Trent Richardson's one of the best players in this year's draft. He's a good player, but he's not one of the best. All right, let's get you here out of here on this. We're in Buffalo, and the Bills have another top 10 pick this year. They made some news yesterday, re-signed Stevie Johnson. Uh, where do you project the Bills? What do you, what do you think would be... What do you what do you hear? What do you think the Bills are looking to target? Maybe offensive line or well, offensive potentially offensive line. Uh, although I don't know that they're going to take Jonathan Martin that high. I think they like a pass rusher. Uh, I, I think if Melvin Ingram ca- continues his upward swing up draft boards, he may be too good of a prospect uh, to pass up. They they did a good job with uh, uh, Marcellus last year. You get to, you get another piece to that defense. 
in a pass rusher. And now you got the you know the Bruce Smith Cornelius Bennett sort of uh, situation. Although it's you know it's not an apples to apples comparison, but you, you're starting to build that sort of defense that the bill that the Bills built, you know, uh, which helped them get to uh, four Super Bowls. All right. It's Tony Pauline. Again, you can find his work at DraftInsider.net, SportsIllustrated.com, and on Twitter at Tony Pauline. Thank you very much, Tony. Thanks for having me. Talk to you soon. Special thanks to Grant Wall for popping our soccer cherry on the podcast tonight. <laughs> yeah, I had fun with that. I like talking a little bit of soccer, kind of a change of pace. It was, yeah, it was fun. Good. All right, Sportscasters 10 today, we're going to do two things. One, Don and I are going to both update our top 10 teams most likely to win the Stanley Cup this year. We said when we did it back on Episode 7, which is two shows ago, that after the trade deadline was over and we had a chance to see how everything shook out, that we would update this list and make our final kind of Stanley Cup predictions in terms of who we think is going to be in it. And then after that, Don and I kind of sat down together today and made a co-list. 22 teams used the uh, franchise tag in the National Football League this season, and we made our list of the top 10 players who were franchised by their team. Usually not a popular decision from the player's standpoint. No, it just means another year they have to kind of avoid a career-ending injury. Right. And yeah, don't get to go where they want. All right, Tom, why don't you kick us off by kind of updating us on what your top 10 list looks like in terms of teams likely to win the Cup and then give us a Cup prediction, East versus West. All right, real quickly, uh, my biggest movers on my list were obviously with the news today that Crosby uh, is cleared for contact. That, to me, I said it earlier, it's a center-driven league. They got the two top centers probably in the league. So they were my number nine team. I'm going to move them all the way up to three. Uh, I'm going to move St. Louis actually up over Detroit for my from two to one. I hit St. Louis at two. I had Detroit at one. I'm going to just flip-flop those guys right now. We were just talking off the air. It's going to be really interesting to see who wins that division. Both of those teams are stellar, stellar home teams, and anybody that has to go play in those buildings is going to have a tough time winning. So if one of those teams, they're both currently one point behind Vancouver for the conference lead too. So if, if those teams can lock up the number one, is Chicago team, out of that? Where does Chicago stand in that division? They're, they're still in a playoff spot, but they're about 10 points. Back. Oh, okay. So they're out of, the so they're out race. of the division race, but yeah, those two teams just win at home. Uh, my biggest drop, our biggest team to fall is Boston. I had them at three. I had them about six now. Something just feels off with Boston. I'm not exactly sure what it is. They've played, been playing it's a lot of hard hockey, hockey, too. Yeah, yeah. With, you know, they went all the way to game seven of the cup last year. It's Especially the way they play. They kind of beat you up. Quick turnaround. So, uh, and, yeah, everyone else, I moved the Rangers up one spot. I got to start respecting that team and stop waiting for the wheels to fall off. So I had them at four. Uh, and everyone else kind of hung around. I didn't have anyone totally drop off the list. I left San Jose at 10, uh, Philly at 8, and so on. All right. My big change is I dropped Chicago off. I said when I made the list that they needed to improve goalie. Yeah. They didn't. Actually, there was no goalies moved at the no, trade deadline. No, the closest thing to that was uh, Marty Turco just got picked, picked up by yeah. Detroit. Or yeah. no, by Boston. Right, to, because Tukarask is out. Done, yep. 
All right, so I moved Chicago off, and I moved Nashville in. It was probably an oversight not to have Nashville to begin with, but I moved Nashville to seven. I like their additions. Getting Paul Gostad at center, help with some draws. They also added Kostitsin, and they have great goaltending. So I moved them to seven. Um, the Flyers are eight, Sharks are nine, and Devils are ten. Um, I moved the, Bru- the Bruins back to five. Um St. Louis is at six. Probably should be giving them more respect, but I love my top four of Detroit, New York, Vancouver, and Pittsburgh. I move Pittsburgh into the top four, the Bruins out of it. I think my St. Louis being at six is, is just me predicting the Red Wings will win the division. Okay. You right. know, that's I guess that's basically what I'm doing. I think if the Red, if the Blues were to win the division and I knew that, they'd have to be higher on the list based on how good of a home team they are. Yeah, but I'd expect them to end up being the four seed. That's why I'm going to favor Detroit. And I'm going to make a real kind of gutless prediction and just say it's going to be the Rangers and Red Wings in the, in the cup. Yeah, I'm going to say, uh, I mean, if I'm going by my list, I'm saying St. Louis-Pittsburgh. And I think uh, the interesting, uh, Pittsburgh is kind of a top-heavy two-center team, and St. Louis is kind of like the team team. I right. mean, it's, there's no st- not many stars there and just a uh, combined effort. So it'll be an interesting contrast to styles. Yeah, so here's an interesting question for you, Don. This is a top 10 list, and neither of us had the Sabres in it. How long would the list have to have been for the Sabres to appear for you? Jeez. Uh, would they be in your top 15? When Ryan Miller, I mean, I guess they got to make the playoffs first. But right. when Ryan Miller gets hot, he's one of the best goalies in the world. And you have to assume at some point, Pominville and Vanek are going to start scoring again. They wouldn't be far – they'd be in the top half, sure. They'd be in the top 15. I like their chances probably better than like an Ottawa that's sitting in the playoff spot right now or even Winnipeg. I know Winnipeg beat them, and they they beat them pretty good the other night, but that was a Sabres team that was exhausted. So Winnipeg doesn't overly impress me. Uh, their, their crowd's great. I mean, they'll be a, they're not going to probably have any home games but if – or not home games, but they're not going to have home ice advantage at all. But if they did, they could be a scary team too. I They'd suppose. be a team that would scare you if they get a split. Yeah, you know, if you split with them and then you have to go back there yeah. and you so, worried about being down three to one coming. Not home. a real talented team, but that's a that's a tough place to play, and they they feed off it. Now here's another thing. Let's say that someone said to you, "Here's the bet. You tell me the Sabers are gonna make the playoffs or not, and if you're right, I let you pick your daughter's husband." <laughs> Wow. Uh, so you get this chip of guaranteeing that your daughter doesn't marry like a scumbag someday if you're right about whether or not the Sabres will or won't make the playoffs. My heart tells me they will because I, I just want them to, and they they did this last year, and they squeaked in with what? Maybe they were a playoff team with maybe three games to go last year or something like that. I don't know. Their schedule is brutal, and it's a lot of road games and – it's gonna be it's gonna be tough. I Miller's publicly saying how exhausted he is, which was really strange. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, sure, I'll say yes. And that's more of a uh, comment on I don't respect a lot of the talent in front of them. It's Winnipeg, Washington, and Tampa Bay, and Washington is just kind of given up. Tampa's putting together a nice run, but so it's basically past Tampa and Winnipeg as far as I'm concerned. I, I don't think Washington's gonna do anything. Toronto doesn't scare me from behind the Sabres. I mean, they've won two of their last ten games, so they've given up, basically. Well, now, if you're wrong, you've do Molly to marry Lenny Dykstra, a 75-year-old <laughs> Lenny Dykstra. 
All right, we are going to take a break. Oh, no. We have so much more to do. Oh, <laughs> I was going to yeah. end the segment. And That's we, right. That was the recap. Right. We uh, still have to give our top 10 list of NFL franchised players. All right, at number 10. Uh, it's not the sexiest position in the world, but it is an important one, and that's Weatherford, the punter from the Steve Giants. Steve Weatherford. Steve Weatherford. Yeah, we kind of included him as an homage to all the kickers and punters that were franchised this yeah, year. Yeah, strangely large amount. All right, our number nine is Deshaun Goldson, a safety for the 49ers. Really showed the value in the uh, game against the Saints. Really good player, definitely someone that they need in this pass heavy league. Number seven is... Uh, wait, wait, back up. Oh, geez, sorry. Eight is uh, Brent Grimes, or Grimey, as he likes to be called, from <laughs> Atlanta. Uh, we we talked a lot about Drew Brees earlier. Uh, now that division also has Cam Newton, um, Matt Ryan. Or, geez, <laughs> Matt Ryan's on his team. Right. But uh, Josh Freeman. Josh Freeman. And, uh, not probably scaring many Cameron people. Newton. But, Cam but, Newton. But, yeah. It, Fig Newton. Pass, pass heavy. Division and conference in general, so you need good cornerbacks. They had to lock him up. Better Newton, Isaac, Fig, or Cam? Ooh, Fig is Fig is the clear worst yeah. of the Newtons. I'd probably have to give it to Isaac. He's Isaac. got the longer career. So. Right. All right, number seven is probably one that disappointed Bills fans because it's definitely a position they need to upgrade, and it's one less guy out there on the market to do it, and that's Fred Davis from the Redskins. He, he was uh, injured late in the season last year. And uh, if not for that, he would have uh, challenged Gronkowski and Graham for that tight end record there. Number six, uh, guy played with drops, but he's probably the most talented player on a team that doesn't have much talent beyond Jamal Charles, and that's Dwayne Bowe. Uh, again, it's kind of the move they had to make. They they have to keep some talent in that offense. It's kind of interesting because the next three, six, five, and four, they're all wide receivers. Yeah, they're all very important to their team. So you could kind of debate this, but for number five, we have Deshaun Jackson from the Eagles. And but here's the thing: is he a guy you want on your team? Angry? No. I, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, is he going to pout now, or you know, what kind of player is he going to be? And I'd be a little nervous about that. I question how good a player he is in general. He's He's a guy that runs really fast, and he's a great punt returner. But do I want to be paying him top five money, like you said, as an angry player? Yeah, I don't know if I love this decision. He, he was kind of angry last year, too, leading up to this whole And they got Macklin and, there, who's a similar player. And they have Steve Smith, if he's back to being healthy, from the Giants that they got the year before. Uh, they could always sign on this battle if they wanted. <laughs> Randy Moss is out there right. if they want a disgruntled receiver. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't. Deshaun Jackson's a weird guy, and it, it makes me think of fantasy football. And he's going to be a guy that's probably, I don't know, what a fourth rounder type guy, fifth rounder. He's going to make me nervous. Like, so in real life, he would make me even more nervous if I was a fan of that team. Our number four guy, like we said, is another receiver. It's Wes Welker. Uh, you had trouble with him. I don't. I have trouble paying him number one money, but for that team, like you said, you can't argue with 120 plus catches every year. We discussed, I don't know if it was on the podcast or off the air, but we discussed Chris Drury going back to the Sabres and his important, like he went to New York and was injured and just wasn't the same guy. But that you can't argue that that means that he wouldn't have been productive in Buffalo. Right. Because sometimes certain players fit in certain spots. Wes Welker may not be the prototypical number one receiver, but he's, perfect for that offense so 
I I get it. I just I don't I don't look at him and see number one receiver. Well, our number three is certainly someone that you see number one running back for. Oh, yeah. and that's Ray Rice, definitely a stud. And this is running backs hate this the most because it's such a dangerous yeah. position. Yep. You know, and the lights can go out so quickly there. So I'm sure Ray Rice isn't happy to be franchised, but that doesn't mean that they might not. And none of this means that they won't necessarily get Sign, a deal right. done. It just it's protecting the team from losing these guys in free agency, which, like you said, opens next week. Uh, the next guy is a guy that, that had that exact nightmare. And this scenario is one you push to, to move up too. Yeah, and this was more. Uh, Ray Rice might even be a more talented guy, but as far as importance to their team and just teams that had to do this is uh, number two is Matt Forte. You talked about how running backs hate this, and he was a guy that all year was pretty public about his displeasure with not having a contract with the Bears, and they didn't give him a contract, and then he had a season-ending injury, and now they're franchising him. I wonder what type of Matt Forte they're going to get back. Obviously, he's going And to that's be- why they had to franchise him. They couldn't afford to give him a long-term deal because they haven't seen him play post-injury. Right. It was only an MCL. It wasn't an ACL. You know, he's not facing what, you know, Jamal Charles and Adrian Peterson are facing in terms of recovery and Richard Mendenhall coming back from an ACL. But I, I think it could go a long way to kind of like a PR move to other players in the league that Chicago Chicago needs to do right by him, I think. He's been underpaid. Uh, and now, like you said, he, he got hurt. and he's He risked his career playing for this contract. And I, I, this is another situation I could see turning ugly. Number one is obviously Drew Brees. I mean, you could argue he's the best player in the league, so how can he not be number one on this list? And I think Brees and Forte, if we were to make the list a little different, players that need to get long-term deals, those would probably be the top two on that list too. Sure. Because they mean so much to their teams and to their cities that they, you know, Brees especially, they can't let him slip away. We talked about that earlier. And that's the case for Forte and, and Rice to some degree. You know, you could see the Falcons without Brent Grimes. You know, sure. you, you could get away from that, but you couldn't get away from the Saints without Drew Brees. Not, no, absolutely not. So, all right, that will do it for the Sportscasters <laughs> 10 this week. Uh, we're going to take a break and come back with Tony Pauline and talk more football and talk a little bit about the draft and the combine. Our next guest is from Toronto, Ontario, and is a graduate of the University of Guelph. His career started as the host of Live Audio Wrestling and Leafs Lunch. In 2007, he began a four-year run on CBC's Hockey Night in Canada, where he hosted a serious satellite radio show, worked on television broadcasts, and helped debut iDesk. In 2011, he took his talents to Rogers Sportsnet, where he still works today. Debuting late last year, he began to co-host the Merrick vs. Wyshynski podcast with our good friend, the Puck Daddy, who describes him as a verbaceous mother effer. Today, he is making his second <laughs> appearance on the podcast. A warm sportscaster's welcome to the very talented gentleman, Jeff Merrick. How are you doing today, Jeff? Uh, first, first of all, thank you. Uh, and to wish, F you. And to uh, whoever chose... 
Whoever chose the intro music, bravo, because here's a little bit, a little bit of uh, my biography. Okay. Uh, you came in with uh, Magic Power by Triumph. Right. And where I grew up in the West End of Toronto, Rick Emmett, uh, who's a lead guitarist from Triumph, oh, what a, what a uh, lived, around the, lived around the corner from myself. And when I was, God, I want to say six years old or seven years old, I remember playing catch with Rick Emmett out in the, his front yard, and I threw a ball to him, and it was like a horrible throw, and missed him, and we broke uh, old lady Miss what's her last Miss Carrie's window. Oh no! And we both scr- and we both scrambled and ran. <laughs> uh, so it was funny because when whenever I hear Triumph, I always think about you know I feel bad. I mean she's long passed on. I'm sure. I mean she was you know 80, 90 years old at that time, and I never went back and, and fessed up to Miss Carrie that I that I broke her window and I was six years old. So whenever I hear Triumph now, it takes me back to being a six-year-old kid in the west end of the city. So thank you very much, whoever chose that music. Is a well, long-winded way of saying thanks. It was, uh, we call him Uncle Rick here. Um, and thanks, he, Rick. He, what an underrated player. You know what I mean? I mean, just, can play anything. <laughs> you know, he can play anything. He really He's can. a glue guy, man. He, yeah. he already made your guests feel at home. So bravo, Uncle Rick. Bravo. All right. So, I was listening to Merrick versus Wyshynski yesterday, and I wanted to talk a little bit about the issue with Don Cherry because it's really fascinating to me being from Buffalo and um, kind of really being a part of the issue of local players and playing with uh, the professional team. We've had a few recently, you know, uh, Patrick Kladis still on the teams from Angola, New York, just south of the city. Tim Kennedy played a whole season uh, on the on the fourth line there before we, we moved him to Florida. He's from South Buffalo, which is where Patrick Kane is from. They just grew up a few streets apart. And um, there's also been a couple other players who kind of been in the mix. Um, Brooks Orpik's brother was drafted by the team. And, you know, I grew up with Hockey Night in Canada and Don Cherry, and I've always been a fan, and I still watch Coach's Corner every week on my iPad. And I kind of laughed at him last week in his rant with uh, about Brian Burke and the lack of Ontario uh, natives on the Leafs. And... You know, you guys kind of got on him a little bit for, for playing with the facts, which is something that he has, is known to do. But uh, maybe just for our listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with the situation, maybe you can just give kind of your opinion on the Leafs and their lack of Ontario-born players. Well, they don't have any. I mean, Don is quite correct about that. They don't have any on the active roster right now. Now, they have players in the minor league system with the Toronto Marlies. And over the past three years, they've drafted eight players that were born in Ontario, uh, and actually, you can make the argument that actually nine, because Tyler Biggs, even though he plays University of Miami at Ohio, his dad, Don Biggs, um, played with the Oshawa Generals, still lives in Mississauga, I believe. So I think he's dual citizenship. I think he's both Canadian and American. So so I guess we can say there's eight and a half players that uh, that Brian Burke has selected that were, uh, that were from Ontario, most of them still playing in the Ontario Hockey League. So it's not as if... There's an agenda. This is kind of the, the the main issue that I had with the way Don presented it. It's not as if there's an agenda where Brian Burke, uh, general manager of the Maple Leafs, has a very specific you know order to only draft American players or players that are not from Ontario. This the furthest thing from the truth because the pipeline is filled with players uh, that come from Ontario. But it it does it does touch on another issue. Is there value? in having the local boy comes home story. Right. Like, is there value in, you know, to your point, Coletta, Kennedy, I guess, you know, you would say maybe, hey, yeah, come on, Lee Stempniak, let's go on, you got to come right. back, come back to the nest and, and play with the Buffalo Sabres. I mean, is there value in that? To which I would say, well, maybe there is and maybe there's not. I think it all depends on the player. Sometimes it works quite well. Other times, you look at Joffrey Lupel from Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta, playing with the Edmonton Oilers. That didn't work out well 
at all. I think you really have to know the player. You have to know the marketplace as well. Sometimes it works out great, and other times it just doesn't work out at all. Some players like that pressure, like that instant accountability, knowing that friends and family are there watching, knowing that you know the city that they play in is the city they live in, the city they're going to be in during the summer, and they know that every time they go get a cup of coffee or uh, go to the movies or go get a bite, all they're going to hear about is what happened last year with the hometown team. Some players like that. Some players thrive under that situation. Other players don't want any part of it. I mean, Danny Briere, when he was a free agent, when he left, sorry, sore spot, when he left the Buffalo <laughs> Sabres, you know, one of the offers on the table was from the Montreal Canadiens. And he very specifically said, I don't want to go play with the Avs. He chose rather to go play with the Philadelphia Flyers. And one of the reasons is it's not, it, it, depending on the person, it's not always a healthy situation. Sometimes that, that pressure can... Uh, can either destroy you or that pressure on the lump of coal can turn it into a diamond. All all depends on who the player is and, and what they thrive on. Some guys like being anonymous hockey players in the market. Others like being the superstar. It's a rare person that can succeed and survive as a superstar. So it's it's sort of a, I don't want to say it's a double-edged sword, but it's always a tricky proposition when you do the local boy comes home story because if Jonathan, uh, you know, John Tavares, or Steven Stamkos, for example, were uh, able to be either drafted by or traded for by the Toronto Maple Leafs, there's no guarantee that those two guys who are in you know, relatively obscure hockey markets in the U.S., there's no guarantee that those guys would thrive and John Tavares would be you know, the outstanding you know, leading scorer for the New York Islanders would be that guy with Toronto, or would Steven Stamkos lead the NHL where he'd, playing in, where he'd, where he, uh, where he'd be playing in, in Toronto as a member of the Maple Leafs? No guarantee that would happen. Depends on the player. Depends on the person. But just to say it's a blanket statement like Don did on Saturday, oh, they don't have any Ontario kids, they'll never be successful. Well, Don only did that when the team was in a losing streak. I mean, we didn't right. hear this coming out of him when the Toronto Maple Leafs were first place in the Eastern Conference and Phil Kessel was a leading scorer. It's only when they're losing that it becomes convenient to make your point. You know, he mentioned a few times in that rant, he kept saying, if you want U.S. college hockey players, it seemed like he, you know, kept saying that. And the the guy, I have season tickets down at the Sabres, and um, the guy who sits behind me actually comes in from, uh, oh, it's in Ontario. Uh, I'll think of his town. No, no, it's uh, uh, Oakville. And, uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, he comes in, and him and his son and his wife, they have four tickets, and, you know, they're into the Sabres, and um, we always, we, we, I always tease him because it seems like he loves Tyler Myers and he loves Coletta. He, it seems like he likes to, I tease him about that he loves the, the junior players, you know, that he doesn't yep. gravitate to the Sabres who, who went the U.S. college route. And um, I tease him about that. Is, is that, is that like, do, do Canadian hockey fans in general, do they prefer uh, players that go the, um, the junior route over the U.S.? Like, is there a disappointment when, Maybe a guy yeah, like Jaden Swartz I, decides to go to Colorado I, College instead of playing juniors? Um, I just think that they're more familiar with them when they play Canadian uh, major junior hockey. You know, Tyler Myers plays with Kelowna Rockets. You know, Tyler Myers, there he is in the Memorial Cup. You, you just know him because you see him. You know, if you would have chosen to gone to Div, uh, go to a, a Div 1 school, you probably wouldn't get a chance to know him and a chance to see him. Hey, Pat Collette, old Peterborough Pete, you know, we recognize you from watching the Ontario Hockey League. So it was just a... There's just a familiarity there. But I don't think for, for one second that Canadian hockey fans, I mean, I didn't hear one outside of, you know, Olaf Kolzig, who owned the team at the time, I didn't hear one Canadian hockey fan, you know, bemoan the fact that, uh, that Jonathan Taves went to University of North Dakota and not to the Tri-City Americans of the Western League when they drafted him first overall from the Bantam draft. Like, I, I, just, I just think it's a matter of, 
uh, a matter of the teams you're familiar with. And in, in as far as Canadian hockey goes, listen, junior hockey's a freak up here, bro. I mean, we love our junior hockey squads, whether it's the Medicine Hat Tigers or the Valdor Fourers or the Sudbury Wolves. We just have this insatiable love for, for junior hockey. So I don't think it's a, it's a disappointment or, oh, man, we let one get away. How could you go the college route? I just think you just sort of you know, fall in love with the, the guys you get a chance to see. And you know, the bottom line is we don't get a chance to see a lot of Division I players. Like, we don't get a chance to watch guys from, from UND. We don't get to watch guys. Um, we don't get to see John Merrill from Michigan. We don't get to see dudes from, as you mentioned, Colorado College. We don't get to see BU guys and BC guys. We just don't. There's no access to it up here in Canada. But what we do get a chance to watch is a ton uh, of junior hockey, not just every year of the tournament over Christmas, but also all we all year long on various cable packages uh, and, and certainly online as well. And it's covered heavily in the Canadian media. So I just think it's, it's what you're familiar with. The Sabres fans are probably, of course, hey, man, Tyler Myers. And listen, they fell in love with Tyler Myers because in 2009 in Ottawa, him and Keith Ollie were the most amazing shutdown pair for the Canadian juniors, these two twin towers that no one could get past. So that's where the love affair, I'm sure, comes from with uh, Tyler Myers because that was the, the big coming out party for him in Canada. Yeah, you know, my brother is a Div 1 player at Yale. He's a 91-year freshman at Yale, played in the USHL. When he was a bant- nice. when he was a bantam, you know, as you mentioned bantam hockey a minute ago, there was he was on a top AAA team in Buffalo, and there was a lot of people who faced that crossroads of, you know, what, should I pursue um, the Canadian juniors and give the three-year commitment, or should I um, go to prep school and, and, and play, you know, high school hockey and then go on to play in the USHL. And one of the kids who went the other route was a kid named Joe Rogowski who played for Sarnia and um, is still in the uh, OHL right now. And, um, you know, it's worked out for him. He's a, a Penguins um, a Penguins draftee. And then, you know, my brother went the other way, went to the USHL and is playing in Yale and, and very successful there. So I think, you know, both roads are, you know, can lead to the same place and, and both kids can be successful either way. There's no one size fits all. There's right. no like once upon a time like you had to go, you had to go if, if you wanted to play in the NHL. The quickest, smartest, easiest route was to play Canadian major junior hockey, right? Very rare. I think Red Berenson was the first to go right from, uh, right from from Div One to the NHL with the Montreal Canadiens, and that was a freak. Like that was like what sixty four, sixty five. Red Berenson, like you just didn't do that. And this is after Red Berenson turned down the Montreal Canadiens and turned down a. I think at that time it was a $16,000 a year contract so he could go pursue his MBA at Michigan. And they said, you'll never play in the NHL. But the first chance they had at Red Berenson, uh, he was in the lineup and winning a Stanley Cup with the Montreal Canes. But that, those were rare stories. And it's only been within the last couple of decades that, you know, the, the, the Div 1 programs have caught up. And, listen, players uh, make their choices and parents make their choices based on a very, very specific uh, set of criteria. And what's right for a kid from Moose Jaw, as it relates to the uh, as it relates to the Western Hockey League, may be different from someone who's saying, you know what, maybe it would be better for me if I went to University of Miami in Ohio. Maybe better for my development as not just a hockey player, but as a human being as well. Everyone's different. No scenario is exactly the same, and it all depends on the person, where you want to go, where you want to get to, how you want to develop as a human being, what type of education package you want, because there are those available uh, if you go the CHL route as well. But right now, more so than ever, I'm not in a position, I don't think anyone realistically is, to say that one is far superior to the other for everybody. Every situation is different.
Yeah, you know, I think Jeff Farkas and Brian Gianta were the two players that kind of reintroduced this area to college hockey as they played minor junior hockey here and then went on to BC and had successful careers and, and both played a little bit in the NHL. And it's too bad that Jeff Farkas broke his neck because I think he might have had uh, just as good of a, a career as Gianta had or is yeah. having. Um, we got to get you out of here on this. It went by really quick, and, and I'm sorry if I kept you a little long, but last thing, the, no, the, the word came out today that uh, Crosby is cleared again, and you know he's someone who obviously went the major junior route and uh, yep. maybe could be back as, as quick as Sunday. And, you know, I struggled through this. I, I've been uh, disappointed with the way things have gone because I think he's so important to the league, and I care about the league and the success so much. And I think he's such a great kid, and you know a lot of people around me, um, you know, maybe have some anger because he defeated the U.S. with the gold medal goal, or or ruined the Winter Classic in Buffalo with the shootout goal. But to me, that's just uh, <laughs> to me that's just a guy who knows how to rise to the occasion and, and never lets a big moment pass him. And I admire him for that. And I want this to work out. And I guess my question for you is: Are you confident that Sidney Crosby can have the career that we all have? all want him to have can he still be the guy that can lead this league into the maybe being uh, you know instead of being the bottom of the big four in the united states like being pushing basketball a little bit or maybe even baseball you know i i, I, I still think if in order for that to happen there needs to be an american Sidney crosby mm-hmm. uh, there there needs to be an american Sidney crosby and he needs to play on an american team for that for the needle to really be moved in the United States as far as popularity of hockey goes. Uh, but as far as Sidney Crosby himself goes, I, I really don't know what to expect. Like, I don't know whether, you know, now that he's, you know, on his way back to the Pittsburgh Penguins lineup, and I think today he said, you know, nothing before Sunday. Sunday right. I think a loose timetable is six to seven days from now. So that's wonderful news for the, for the Pittsburgh Penguins and to your point as well for the entire NHL. It's always a better league with Sidney Crosby. Uh, then without Sidney Crosby, just his very presence makes everybody better because either he's playing with you and you're better because of it or he's playing against you and he's bringing out the best in you. And that's where the one of the real values of Sidney Crosby exists. But I just don't know. Like I don't think anybody knows. Like, it's right. The new reality of Sidney Crosby that he plays 10 games and then he's out for 20. Or is are the injuries all behind him now? Because there have been a number of players... Look, Jean Beliveau's name comes to mind. Injured the first couple of years of his career. Everyone said, oh, that's it. This guy can't play. And he goes on to be one of the Hall of Famers and one of the greatest players to ever uh, lace up the blades and grab a stick and, and play hockey. We just don't know. Like, I, I have no idea what to expect. I know that every time he gets hit now, everyone's going to cringe, specifically in that first game that he has back again. Every time he gets touched, every time he goes down, every time he initiates contact, every time he braces for contact, everyone's going to have those, ah, ooh, yeah. Yeah, those moments because it seems as if, you know, already we're just anticipating the next Sidney Crosby injury. For his sake, uh, for his family's sake, and for hockey fans, uh, both in the United States and Canada, I hope they're behind him because, as I said earlier, he makes everybody better and the league is a much better place with Crosby a part of it. Yeah, we went through it here with Pat LaFontaine and then oh, Tim Conley. God, yeah. You know what I mean? I know exactly what you mean. I'm just glad Scott Stevens isn't in the league anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's a good point. Jeff Merrick, you can find him at the Merrick vs. Wachinski podcast, which you can find every day on iTunes and Puck Daddy blog. And uh, you can find him on Twitter at Jeff Merrick. we got to talk in the offseason. We have more time. We can talk about troughs and we can talk about wrestling and Steamboat sure, versus Savage and things like that, but um, I know do your it. time's tight, Let's so we'll, we'll let you go now. But uh, before I, oh, one last thing: who cut pick in case I don't talk to you between now and then? 
Oh, boy. At the beginning of the season, I picked the Chicago Blackhawks facing off against the Pittsburgh Penguins. Uh... So you know what? I'm not going to be one of the. I'm not going to be a fair weather fan. I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to stick with my original pick. It's going to be Chicago or Pittsburgh. The Pittsburgh Penguins end up uh, coming out with the big mug. All right. So Jeff Merrick, another guy to pick the Sabers in the Cup here on the uh, Sportscasters. <laughs> Just get what in there sucker. first. Your goaltender's got to make some. <laughs> your got to make some saves while he's not in California. That's a good. That's a very good point. All right. Thanks, Jeff. We'll talk to you soon, buddy. <laughs> Take care. Thanks for yep. the call. All right, we have to thank gentlemen Jeff Merrick and Tony Pauline and Grant Wall for being on the show today. Very diverse edition of the Sportscasters. Want to remind you to check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash sportscasters. Check us out on Twitter, where we're at sports underscore casters. Email us anytime, thesportscasters at gmail.com. Our blog is thesportscasters.blogspot.com. Find us on Tumblr, thesportscasters.tumblr.com, and our website is www.sportscasters.com. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and hopefully soon we're going to be doing more than one podcast a week. And the other one we're going to be doing, it's going to be for Pulled Football Facts and footballnation.com, kind of a football-only podcast. It's in our future, Don. That'll be good. All right, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, one thing Don isn't looking forward to is me recapping last last week's pick four. Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. Don went 0-4. Only the second time we've had an 0-4. And I picked a, what I thought was a gimme pick-ish. He lost on Duke over North Carolina. Uh, that was our game of the week. I had North Carolina over Duke, so I won that one. I went 2-2. Two and two. Yeah, your reasoning was good there. Um, the Bulls were oh, – you had uh, – the Spurs, Spurs over I the think? Bulls. Yeah. You picked the home team there, and the Bulls ended up winning 96-89. So second loss all year at home for the you Spurs. Had the, your doubt for the Rangers cost you again. It did. They beat the Bruins 4-3. to And your bold prediction, you had the Sabres winning and Hodgson getting a point, and you got half of it. Yeah. No Hodgson point, unfortunately. Still waiting for that first point from him, right? Yeah, I don't think he's got any. He hasn't gotten a point yet. Two pluses, maybe. Uh, like I said, I won the North Carolina game. I also won Kansas over Texas. My hate for Texas pays off. <laughs> I lost Michigan State over Ohio State, which is frustrating because Michigan State had a 15-point lead, and they blew the lead at home, and they got scored on in the last second there. But, man, they had good defense, and the guy just made a killer shot, cold-blooded. And <laughs> uh, my bold prediction of picking against Kentucky didn't work. Florida never had a chance. So Kentucky's going to go into the postseason having not lost since December 10th. It's got to be a little scary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's pretty crazy. The game of the week this week, we said earlier in the show, it's kind of a tough week to pick it. This is kind of the like week leading up to bigger things, but not a lot this week. We want the Clippers at the Spurs. That's a Friday game. Uh, that's the ninth at eight thirty. And uh, I believe if you have the certain Fox affiliate, like yeah, Fox, Fox West Northwest, or something. Yep. So if you have that, that's where you'll find it on TV. Because of my lack of success last week, I literally flipped a coin to pick <laughs> this game. And I went with the uh, heads was Clippers, tails was Spurs. It landed heads, so give me the Clippers. All right, I'm going to go with the Spurs based on my plan to pick the opposite of you. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a good way to go. All right, all right. My the host choice this week. I tried to. I'm, I'm going with a gimme again. I'm going back to the well. The Oklahoma City Thunder. They're playing the Suns on Thursday. That's an 8 p.m. game. Give me Oklahoma City at home. 
I'm going to go personal here. I'm going to pick the Yale Bulldogs hockey team over ah, nice. the Harvard Crimson. It's uh, Friday, March 9th. I'll go with Game 1, which is Friday. It's a best of three series. It's on, It's at 7 o'clock on the American One Network. You can purchase the game there. So not on Watch it SNY or no, whatever. No, there's was... no uh, TV coverage of this just yet because Bummer. the American One Network has exclusive rights to this uh, tournament. Okay. But uh, I'm going to pick Yale over Harvard in Game 1 and uh, go Anth. Make me right there. There you go. My worldwide leader pick this week, I'm going to again go back to a, a Sunday hockey game to prove how bad I am at picking hockey. I'm going to turn my distrust for the Rangers into distrust for the Bruins and take the Penguins. Yeah, believe it or not, the Penguins and Bruins are playing Yeah, Sunday that's shocking. Hockey. And, wow, what a, what a thing for NBC because Crosby, Crosby said he should, might be back might be that back. day. Yeah, so that makes that pick even better, I would say. There's no way they lose that game if Crosby comes back, right? No. Unless he gets knocked out and something devastating happens. But knock on wood at that. My picks can't jinx that. But, right. yeah, that's Sunday 1230 on NBC. I'm going to go with the Penguins, too, but I'm going to pick them tomorrow over the Leafs. That game's on the NBC Sports Network at 730. And uh, I think that was kind of an easy one. So, you <laughs> know, hope, to, to have a hope so. You have a Penguins game at home against the Leafs on national TV. I'll take it. My bold prediction this week: we were talking free agents, NFL. Uh, this is a homer pick and kind of a fingers crossed type pick. But I'm going to say Vincent Jackson signs with the Bills. Uh, the, the Bills draft slash beat reporter guy Joe Biscaglia, local to WGR, said the Bill is. Quote was the Bills like Vincent Jackson, like he likes Vincent Jackson, and the, he thinks the Bills like Vincent Jackson. They want to ask him to the prom, or yeah, I think so. <laughs> they, they gave like him one of them prom. cards that says, "Do you like me?" Right. Circle, Circle yes, yes or no. Uh, it makes sense. Uh, they've already come out publicly, and unless they're bluffing, which Buddy Nix doesn't seem to really do, they've already said they have no interest in RG three, so they're not going to move up in the draft to get a quarterback. If anything, they said they're going to move down. So it, this is Fitz's team. Stevie Johnson got signed. They proved they want to keep talent around. Their number two receiver spot is somewhat lacking. David Nelson is like an okay player. He does his role. Roscoe Parrish can never stay healthy. Uh, Vincent Jackson gives you size and speed. and uh, He's it, very, Just an very exciting good. offense. I mean, there wouldn't be many teams that would line up two better receivers than Vincent Jackson. He'd be the best Stevie receiver Johnson. here since Mould, right? Easily, yeah. yeah. All right, we'll give you the first full 24 hours of free agency for that, too. Yeah, I'm going to need it. Yeah. All right, my uh, bold prediction is that by showtime next week, uh, Greg Williams will have received the one-year suspension from the commissioner. Um, that seems about right. I, I've heard some banned stuff, and I, if he was banned, I wouldn't wouldn't complain. He's kind of a jerk. <laughs> but I don't think the commissioner is going to sweep away his livelihood like that. I think, But he's going to have to be punished. And punish severely. So I'll, I'll put it at a year. That'll be my guess. Not that the Saints' defense has been exactly world beaters since they won the Super Bowl, and even then they weren't. They were more of an opportunist, opportunistic right. D than a great D. Do you think this played into his getting fired at all? Maybe. Do you think they maybe knew about? I mean, it he wasn't and, really fired. He kind of laughed voluntarily right, to right. go with Jeff Fisher, and I, I think it might have been part of it. Yeah, it's an interesting story that obviously is everywhere in the news, and Peyton Manning maybe will. Usurp that. We'll see if uh, I can improve on my 24 and 13 record, yeah. and uh, we'll see if Don can improve on his 13 and 25 record. All right, that's it for today. Again, thanks to Grant Wall and Tony Pauline and Jeff Merrick, and we'll see you next week. Don, cue the hip. All right.